But the truth is this. Uh, there's been a young comedian who's caught on big everywhere but on this show. Um, his name was Woody Allen. And uh, he's uh, three shows in a row he's been cut out of. Uh, Jane Mansfield was on one night with uh, Jaja Gabor, and they inhaled, and we ran over, and they, he didn't get on that night. <laughs> and every night this kid has been on the show, he's been cut. And uh, to give you an idea, his first routine was about, uh, oh, about the election. You can see how long ago that was. <laughs> and I'm afraid he's overtrained, but I want him on in my spot tonight, and I want you to know that not every performer gives his spot to another performer, but I want him to be bigger than I was even if it means he will never be back. Woody Allen! Thank you. I, um, it's true that I was booked on this show uh, around three or four weeks ago, and it's not my first TV appearance, but I was, um, I never joined before this AFTRA, which is an actors' union, and I had to join it to do this television program. And when you join the union, they make you join. It's compulsory, uh, a hospitalization plan. And it's a very funny plan because it's like the Columbia Record Album Club, you know? <laughs> they send me every month a list of operations, you know? And <laughs> I got to pick out six for the year that I want, you know? Then <laughs> they remove from me a bonus internal organ of my own choosing. And <laughs> I get a Bach record when the whole thing is over. So I'm happy. I'm not, I wanted to use my minutes up here tonight to uh, relieve myself uh, of a sense of repressed hostility against the law. I have never had, this is true, any brushes with the law of major consequence. I, uh, this doesn't count. This is insignificant. I was once sitting home in my house, and some cars pulled up around the house, and they shined in searchlights, and I heard a voice over a loudspeaker say, we have your house surrounded. This is the New York Public Library. <laughs> they wanted me like to throw out a tale of two cities, you know, and come out with my hands. It was a very bad situation at the time, a lot of smoke and everything. I was unhappy about it. Now, recently, fairly recently, I moved uptown to Madison Avenue and 77th Street, and it's a good neighborhood. It's a very nice neighborhood, and it's a fun place to live. I, uh, on my corner, when I first moved in, this is just one funny story, uh, I have a drugstore and a woman ran in. She was absolutely beside herself. Her husband had reached for the wrong bottle on the medicine cabinet and had taken poison by mistake. That's a funny story. He was home uh, on the floor, like kicking, you know, and turning blue and everything. And it was a real emergency. She needed an antidote desperately, and it was a very tough situation. And it turns out the druggist was Alan Funt. <laughs> for a half hour there, you know, with things going. So it's a good place, and it's happy, and very convivial and everything. But because there's a lot of money up there, and it's an opulent-type neighborhood, they keep on robbing us all the time. This is a big problem. My apartment alone was robbed about four times in two years. And they kept breaking in and taking things, you know, and I didn't know what to do about it. So finally, I put on my door a little blue and white sticker that said, We Gave. You know? <laughs> 
that would be the end of it. But a man in my building, a Mr. Russo, a very nice man, was held up in the lobby. Two big guys held him up late at night, you know, with a bottle and a stick and everything. And they wanted all this cash, you know, and Russo, like a jerk, tried to sign for it, I think, for tax reasons or something. And they hit him a tremendous shot across the frontal lobe, you know? And he fell to the floor in the lobby in a, in a funny little crumpled heap. And he's never really been the same since the blow to the head, you know? He, he smiles a lot now. And, and he, he laughs out of context, you know? And he, he just sits on the edge of his bed and recounts his life, but not in sequence, you know? He, he knows to say his name if you ask him, but he's not as perceptive as, say, the average tree stump. And he formerly was a, a, a lucid type, you know? He would react to a pinprick, at least. He was a, a, a... Now it's mostly finger painting and connecting the dots and everything, you know? And it's that kind of life for him. And people said to me, Woody, like, you're slight of stature, you know? Why don't you build yourself up in the event there's, like, a hostile incursion from the outside world, you could come on, you know? And I went to Vic Tanny's for about eight weeks. I did, and I lifted, and I bent, and I squatted, and I did everything they wanted, and nothing happened to me at all, you know? And I finally got the idea, maybe I should just give Vic Tanny the cash and ask him to walk me home nights, you know? <laughs> Not a bad thought. Now, there's, there's a kid in my building. This is true, there's a kid in my building, a little cretinous type named Leon, who takes karate lessons all the time, you know? And Leon's always walking around with his hand cocked at a right angle like this, you know? He's a difficult kid to reason with on any level, you know? And they said that I should take judo because it's a great equalizer and everything, and you know, it's... But I'm essentially, you know, a practical type, and I've boiled judo down to the principle that the bigger your opponent is, the bigger the beating he's gonna give you, you know? <laughs> seems right to me, you know, so I wanted to get rid of it, and that was the end. But my friends told me in the back of Esquire magazine, you can send away for a fountain pen that shoots tear gas, you know, and it's a, a real pen, and it secretes like a gaseous billow, you know, and it could disorient a dog or something. It's a good pen to have, and I sent away, it came seven and a half dollars in a plain brown wrapper, you know, and for the very ashamed, and I put my cartridges in one night and clipped it into my breast pocket, and I went out on the town. Some friends uptown were having a surprise autopsy or something. I was invited. It was a big deal, and I'm going out for the evening and I'm coming home by myself at 2 a.m. in the morning and standing in my lobby is a Neanderthal man, you know, with the eyebrow ridges, the long arms and everything, you know. He had just learned to walk erect that morning, you know. He came right to my house in search of the secret of fire. He was he boiled life down to the principle, sun good, you know, he knew that, but beyond, like, he, he was a tree swinger in the lobby there, you know, a mouth breather looking at me, and I quickly pulled off my wristwatch and dangled it because they are modified, I hear, by shiny objects sometimes. The tick-tock sound is very soothing to him, you know, but he ate it, and I was really impressed with it. And I stepped back, you know, and I pulled out the fountain pen, I unscrewed the tear gas pot and pressed the trigger, and some ink trickled on my shirt. And I made a mental note to call Esquire and tell them, you know, because I'm standing in the lobby at 2 a.m. with obviously the product of a broken home, you know. I had a fountain pen in my hand. I tried writing on him with it a little bit, you know, but it was something witty, I felt. And he came at me and started to tap dance on my windpipe. And very quickly, I'm alert, I lapsed into the old Navajo Indian trick of screaming and begging. And he backed me off to the wall, and he started to remove my wisdom teeth, you know. And it was really pressure for me, and I'm trying to reason with him because I'm civilized, you know. And I tell him he's the product of an economic squeeze, you know. And he's hitting, we have steps in my lobby in case someone wants to hit your head on something, it's there, you know. And he's pounding it, and I offered to send it to camp if he wanted, you know, anything. And finally, the police came in at the last minute, and they looked around, and they took his side, which I felt was, you know, an extreme poor taste for that thing. Now, that was my second brush. My third and final was the short one, the absolute worst. Across the street from me is Central Park. 
And Central Park is really populated by difficult types, you know, with zippers and sideburns and everything and black jackets. And they go through the park dismantling social workers and things, you know. And they were doing, Central Park does an outdoor production of Hamlet all the time, you know. It's a big thing. They do Shakespeare under those stars. And they were doing a great Hamlet one evening. And in the middle of the production, these six guys come walking through the park, you know, with the jackets and the boots and the whole thing. And they came upon the production of Hamlet and they grabbed Polonius. And they held his head under the duck pond, you know, that was immediate. And they got Gildenstern and Rosencrantz, and they broke their glasses right off the bat. They're the first. And the guy who was playing Hamlet, you know, felt obligated to do something because he was the lead in the production. But it's funny, you can't come on too strong with them when you're wearing leotards. You know, it doesn't... Uh, it's true. Hawken Prithee doesn't cut any ice with these thumpers. Anyhow, the upshot of the whole story was they grabbed Ophelia, but fortunately she turned out to be a cop, so it worked out all right. Anyhow, now I have to go because I have, but I have a message in my work if you are listening closely, and that is you should love your neighbor and lay off fatty foods. Good night. <laughs>